Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Counting is currently underway for the historic union election at Amazon's warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama. We'll talk to Lauren Kaori Gurley, senior staff writer at Vice.com's Motherboard, where she writes about labor and tech. Lauren's been covering the unionization drive in Alabama for more than a year, and we talked to her today about what she has learned about Amazon's business model and what she's learned from the workers taking on this notorious anti-union giant during a pandemic, winning widespread support across the country. All eyes are on this titanic labor struggle in the anti-union South because it has enormous potential to galvanize the labor movement and inspire workers far beyond Alabama. And for that reason, the battle has been fierce. We get Lauren's views. We then turn to law professor Vina Dubal, who spoke with us a few months ago about the condition of precarious platform workers, particularly in the rideshare companies. Vina Dubal says that the passage of Prop 22 in California has emboldened these countries to go national. And she cautions that Prop 22 poses extreme danger to workers everywhere and will exacerbate enormously the inequality we're already experiencing. Vina strikes a note of hope for the new administration so far, but notes that organizing will be the key. We get her take when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and today we're going to continue this coverage of the historic battle to unionize Amazon at the Bessemer, Alabama warehouse. We've been covering this for the last several weeks, but now the vote is in. It's still being counted by the NLRB, and we don't yet know the results. There are observers of the count from both Amazon and the union, which is the retail workers and department store union, RWDSU. And if they're successful, this will be the first Amazon warehouse that will be unionized in the country. We don't know when they're actually going to finish the vote. We're going to talk a lot about that with our guests. And I'm really pleased to have Lauren Kiori Gurley. She's a senior staff writer at Motherboard, which is Vice.com's tech website. She's been covering labor and tech. Her articles on Amazon have been absolutely amazing. And I think we're really lucky to have her today. Her work has been published elsewhere, not just at Vice, but in the New Republic, New York Review of Books, American Prospect in these times, probably in a bunch of other places that I don't know about. But Lauren Gurley just won the prestigious March Sydney Award for her coverage of the historic Amazon election along with Edward Anguiso Jr. And we're going to talk about what Lauren has learned while covering this historic drive. And as I mentioned, the votes are now in and everyone is noticing that this is a drive with enormous potential that could galvanize the labor movement if it wins and inspire workers far beyond Alabama. 
And so for that reason, it's been a particularly fierce battle. And if you go and look on vice.com motherboard and look at all of Lauren's articles, which I've kind of printed out back to back, you know, it's quite, it could be a book and it probably will be at some point. So Lauren Gurley, welcome to Jacobin Radio. Yeah. Hi, Susie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm really excited too, because let the listeners know you've just got your first shot, one and done, and uh, are actually doing this beyond the call of duty because <laughs> there's some effects of it. <laughs> so <laughs> I recommend it, but <laughs> yeah, well, I recommend everybody getting the shot. So I think what we should do is begin with the count and then work back to the struggle and, you know, especially unionize Amazon efforts to. Uh, prevent this unionization drive. So maybe we could just begin with what do you know so far? Do we know, for example, we know that like 5,800 ballots were mailed out on February 8th, that March 29th, the voting was over, that uh, we don't know how many votes were turned in, or do we know that question? And then what are some of the, the challenges that people have mounted so far? I know there's observers on both sides. So maybe just begin with letting the listeners know where we are there. Yeah. So like you said, voting went on for six weeks and it ended on uh, March 29th. The following day, uh, observers gathered in Birmingham, both from Amazon side and the union RWDSU side. And the first stage of the voting is just counting the number of ballots. So you don't even open the ballots. You just make sure that someone signed them, that the person still works there. Either side can challenge ballots. And that's still going on. I think the expectation is that private and it's private that will continue happening until probably mid next week. And then there's going to be a public portion where anyone can attend, I believe I will be there and they will read out the yes and no votes. But at that point, they will open them from the ballot. So you won't be able to see neither side will know whose vote they're reading there. Is this going to look like the Georgia counting or the (laughs) Philadelphia? I mean, a big room and people are looking at ballots and you're on the sidelines, but you can't See what it is they're doing? Well, it's on Zoom. <laughs> oh, it's on Zoom. <laughs> okay. Um, I can't even imagine that, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've been to some of them before. It's like someone just shuffles a bunch of votes in a box and they pull them out and they read yes or no and people tally. And that's going to take a few days too. Once they have the vote count, which they, I assume they will either late next week or early the following week, wow. yeah. then they will announce the results. And I don't think that whatever results that, that they sort of determine, I don't think that necessarily means it's the end of things, right? Like both sides can mount legal challenges, say, hey... Amazon installed a USPS mailbox outside of the warehouse, like a few feet from the front door, which they did do. This could be a violation of labor law because the voting was supposed to be mail-in and now Amazon gets their own mailbox on site and is texting workers to vote from it. I'm not sort of sure what legal challenges Amazon would mount against the union because they haven't really said anything yet, Um, but that could also happen if the union ends up winning. Obviously, the contested ballots become important if the vote is really close. Like, for example, if there are more contested ballots than the difference between yeses and nos, then you also have a problem. And, you know, it's, it's really just the start because when, even if they win, like once they do, getting a contract is like winning would be great, but they don't have anything until they have a contract. So there's a lot more to come. There could even be a revote 
if they have a hearing and decide that like either side broke the rules during the election. So so I guess that's really important to keep in mind that this is but the first step, but it's a historic first step and that people will be elated if they actually, you know, vote to be recognized by the NLRB as a union. And Amazon will be, as I think you mentioned, forced by labor law to recognize that that is the case. And so, yes, I mean, you know, for those who have been through unionization battles, you know that, OK, that's the first step. Then there's the contract and that's huge. But Let's take that stuff when we get to it. First, let's see what happens. Everybody has been watching this battle. And I have been very impressed because I've been looking at labor for a very long time that, you know, this is the first time I think that there has been so much pro-union sentiment across the board. And you had, you know, not just other labor and, you know, activists, but you've had celebrities and, you know, sports people, the uh, newspapers of record, the New York Times has run huge articles, you know, sometimes several pages in the business section. So all of that kind of shows that something fundamental has shifted in this country and people do recognize, especially with the grotesque inequality that exists, that this most, you know, second largest company that has done nothing but get more profits during the pandemic should be giving something back to the workers. So sentiment seems to be on the side of the workers. Having said all of that, <laughs> your articles, you know, your articles have been all about the kind of travesties, let's say, that first that the workers have to work under, but also the anti-union campaign. So I was really impressed by, I think, two sets of articles about the pea scandal. And that was one I think you called that, that it's not just the men, it's shiwis and plastic bags. And for the listeners, you know, that is that we did an interview a couple of weeks ago and Daryl Richardson was quoted and he we didn't have him on but he's been widely quoted and interviewed as a picker at the amazon warehouse where he has to drive a couple of hours to get to he said that they work you like a robot they don't let you leave your workstation to get water you don't have time to go to the bathroom and then right so he said all of that but now you've taken a step further it's not just in the trucks you know where they're having to deliver it's also in the workplace so maybe you could just uh, talk a little bit about this scandal and and amazon's (laughs) response to it for sure so um, if people aren't familiar with (laughs) people not super active on twitter what happened was representative Mark Pocan, I believe, of Wisconsin, posted something about Amazon's working conditions saying, you know, workers pee in bottles and talking about like how much they're paid, sort of in in support of the union drive. And Amazon News account, which is their official like corporate account, responds and says, you don't really believe workers pee in bottles, do you? If they did, no one would work here. That outraged a lot of people. And sort of when I saw that, I've been covering Amazon, obviously, for well over a year and labor issues at Amazon. I was like, this is the most common concern I hear from Amazon delivery drivers. Comes up all the time. These drivers aren't warehouse workers, but they are the contracted people who you see driving Amazon delivery vans that are basically everywhere in the United States now. People are frequently pushed They have to meet quotas, and if they don't fulfill their quotas, which are usually like 200 packages a day, then you can be written up or fired. 
or lose hours, which means you make less money. So people just don't pee. They don't take their breaks. If they do pee, they're peeing in bottles. So we ended up getting photos of workers' pee bottles. (laughs) We ended up soliciting photos. And after we wrote that, a number of women reached out being like, hey, it's way worse for us because pee in bottles necessarily you know, so, so are so, you talking about women drivers or women yeah. at the okay? Yeah. Drivers. Women drivers are like we don't have the luxury of being able to to pee in a bottle, you know, from like the driver's seat. So either we have to go outside and risk, you know, if you're caught peeing in public, Amazon will fire you like on the spot. So they're just really stuck between a rock and a hard place, like especially during the pandemic, bathrooms, public restrooms aren't open. And a lot of these routes are extremely rural. So I talked to women who bought and most of the women I spoke to ended up buying these things called shiwis, which are female urinals. That, oh, so it's actually a thing. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> you just made that up. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. A shiwi is a, it's like a funnel. It's a female urinal that Everyone buys on Amazon, of course, because that's where it's cheapest. And they squat over trash bags and they pee into these little plastic devices. But I also talked to a woman who said, you know, I can't do that or I'm pregnant or I just hold my pee or I fast for 10 hours because it's not, I can't do that. I don't know. So yeah, that was another angle we ended up writing about. And then today, Amazon comes out and it apologizes actually for saying that to representative Mark McCann, who originally made the comment and said, you know, we were wrong. The apology was not a great one. They basically said, you know, this happens at every single other delivery company. (laughs) And yeah, didn't they also first deny it? And then all the pictures, you know, you're reporting and others just did this barrage of pictures. So they couldn't deny it. Right. Right. Yes, yes. <laughs> they denied it. And then we posted a bunch of photos. And now they're saying, you know, we're sorry. We wanted to sort of win this Twitter beef. We weren't thinking straight. <laughs> and instead of saying, you know, like, hey, this is a serious issue. This is what we're going to do to solve it. Or we're going to stop firing drivers who pee during their shift. They said, hey, this happens at UPS and, you know, every other gig economy company. So, like we're not that bad was basically the response. <laughs> wow. So, but then that's not the only thing they do. And maybe I should just skip ahead because I want you to talk about, you know, what you learned in this more than year of reporting. And obviously we can't go over all of it, but there's another, before we get into just the anti-union campaign that Amazon has waged, sure. another thing that you just wrote about was the biometric consent forms that Amazon delivery workers have had to sign. And if apparently if they don't sign them, they can be fired. Could you just explain to the listeners what they are and what does this mean? So Amazon is obsessed with metrics, right? It's obsessed with, they call it customer obsession, but they're obsessed with getting you know, their quotas filled on time and being able to do next day delivery better than any other company. Recently, they announced that they are installing these cameras made by a company called Nitrogen in every single Amazon delivery van in the country that have four lenses and are AI controlled and basically monitor drivers' expressions, facial expressions, 
you know, whether they're, they look like they're going to yawn or whether they're getting tired, whether they're speeding, it, it monitors like dozens of different things using sort of algorithmic technology. And obviously there's a long history of this stuff being inaccurate, racist, and I think drivers already feel surveilled. They're already like constantly monitored by other apps of their progress each day. And so now they have received consent forms saying, do you consent to having this biometric data collected by us, by these cameras? If you don't, <laughs> you can't work here anymore. This is nationwide. And most drivers have already had to sign these forms within the past few weeks. Some people have quit because they're like, this is just a step too far for me. And the, the forms are pretty vague. Like it says that you can collect any biometric data, but you know, that could be a whole host of other things going forward that it's unclear what that is. Do you know if this is confined to Amazon? Is this something Uber and Lyft and DoorDash and all of the other drive app companies would be, you know, probably wanting to use as well? Some of them use facial recognition technology like Uber does in the United States. And I believe some of the other delivery companies do where when you start a ride or something, you need to show a picture of your face to the camera to confirm that you're who you say you are. But those have also been people have said that a lot of people have pointed out people of color have pointed out that these are racist and sometimes they'll get locked out of their account because the app won't realize that it's them. But in terms of this AI powered camera that tracks like speed, following distance, facial expressions, I think this is pretty new, at least for like big companies. So yeah, it's scary. I think a lot of people are terrified of giving Amazon this level of control over their working conditions that are already like extremely stressful. I would say warehouse jobs are bad or are stressful and so are delivery jobs. But I think that delivery jobs, there's an extra level of precarity because you're not an employee of Amazon, right? You're subcontracting. And yeah, I think there should be more attention drawn to the conditions of delivery drivers. But yeah. You know, I mean, you you were reporting on this, just on this one issue, has there been any pushback as they complained? Is it legal for employers to force employees to consent to something like this that is such an invasion of privacy? I believe it is legal. There are certain states where you have to, like Illinois has very strong laws against this, where you have, you have to disclose you're being monitored with biometric technology or algorithmic AI technology. But uh, no, I think that it is legal in, in most states. And sometimes, you know, people don't even know what's happening. I believe a number of U.S. senators, including Bernie Sanders, reached out to Amazon asking questions about, you know, how is this technology going to be used? So there's been a lot of pushback, but uh, I don't think there's anything necessarily illegal under the laws that we have going on. So let's go back then to the anti-union campaign, because you've been there for, like, as you mentioned, a year, you've seen a lot. And can you talk a little bit about what you've learned there and, and what is the nature of the campaign that Amazon waged against the efforts of the union and the workers? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Amazon has been a blatantly anti-union company, which most people know since since basically its founding. There was a union drive in Seattle at a call center in the 1990s. You know, they opposed. And then there was another effort in 2014 for a group of technicians to unionize in Delaware that lost. But they also sort of ran a anti-union campaign there that was recently covered in, in depth in The New York Times. 
they went back and sort of said like what ended up happening there. With this case in Bessemer, Alabama now, you have Amazon basically doing anything within like remotely legal. I mean, some of it is very shady and it's unclear if it's legal or not, but waging a full on union busting campaign. So what that looks like is workers are receiving or were receiving texts nearly every single day telling them, you know, where to vote, how to vote, why the union wouldn't help them or would actually take away their job security because Amazon could pack up and leave. There are posters all over the warehouse, even in the bathroom stalls entrance of the building. And then there are also these captive audience meetings. So captive audience meetings are mandatory meetings that an employer can hold before a union election on the clock to basically explain to workers sort of under the guise of let's get the facts why they should vote no for a union. And workers I spoke to had sat in like at least six of these that ran mm. for an hour. And I think, you know, people who are like, okay, I don't even have enough time to go to the bathroom and you're willing to spend six hours yeah. <laughs> um, holding me in these meetings, that definitely rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. In terms of like un- more, more unprecedented things that they did, you may have talked about it on your last episode, but they ended up changing the streetlight outside, the timer on the streetlight outside the warehouse in Bessemer where um, this small public patch of sidewalk where RWDSU organizers were organizing workers who are leaving their shifts. This is basically the only point of contact they've had because of COVID. They're not doing door knocking and the warehouse is extremely like rural and people live all over the place. So basically they're standing out on this sidewalk almost 24-7 and then Amazon goes and changes the stoplight. So when organizers started to have conversations, you know, by the time they even got to the, as someone said, by the time I get to the good part, the light always changes. So it really hurt their campaign. And that's pretty unprecedented. They got county officials to do that. So I think they also got the mailbox that I mentioned out, installed outside. They've hired union avoidance consultants who they pay $3,000 a day to come and like basically coach the company on how to do some of this stuff. I think a lot of this stuff is unprecedented and specific to the location. I know you maybe spoke to John Logan before. Yeah. (laughs) I think what he has to say is that Amazon will do anything in its power to stop the union drive. And so oftentimes that's sort of in the gray area of the law and they've done stuff that could end up, you know, If the vote is close, um, the union can say, hey, you did all these things that were illegal and, you know, that could maybe lead to a revote. He also says that, like, you know, a lot of what they do and like sort of their reputation is they use tactics that are unprecedented in union avoidance work that, you know, could maybe. um, Union busting is what we really should call it, right? Yeah. Now they say union avoidance. I always say union avoidance because it is the technical term, but union busting is what it is. And so, yeah, I think they've done a lot of things that are unheard of before, especially since it was a mail-in election, which was very rare before the pandemic started. And so... (laughs) Well, I mean, there's something, as you're speaking, I covered a lot of the efforts in earlier years. It's probably about a decade and more ago when there was the Walmart organizing, which, you know, and Walmart is the largest company in the world and Amazon's only second. And of course, as everyone knows who knows about Walmart, it's low wage and they hire a team of people for 24-7 to prevent even 
a whisper of meeting to have a union. But and Walmart, of course, is this firm from the south. It, they're reactionary, so yeah. to be expected. But Amazon has this reputation. You know, this is forward-looking. They, you know, support the Democrats. Some of the old Obama administration officials are now working <laughs> at Amazon. And maybe they weren't labor friendly. They certainly didn't go do anything for labor, but they pretended to be. And here you've got this description that puts Amazon, if not in league with Walmart, they're doing them one better. For sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so I mean, is this their business model? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yes. I think definitively, like it is their business model. Jeff Bezos and people at the company have spoken out about, you know, why they think unionization is bad. This also trickles down to Whole Foods, which is a subsidiary of Amazon. Their CEO, John Matthews, the you know, diehard libertarian who, you know, has compared unions to her, uh, he called union, uh, unions are herpes, I believe, was his famous quote. But yeah, for them and for the rhetoric that they have used during this election and in the past is that, you know, we are a progressive employer, we pay double the federal minimum wage per hour, they pay $15 an hour, we have, you know, benefits for I mean, basically, it's like, in a rural place in the US where your options are maybe retail or fast food, they sort of market themselves as like being the much better option, right? But in reality, they shouldn't be comparing themselves to fast food or to to retail. They should be comparing themselves to the warehouse industry where wages are actually much higher than $15 an hour. So they're actually driving down wages in the warehouse industry, especially unionized jobs. Even in a rural area, even in Alabama, you can make up to $30 an hour in a warehouse job. And a lot of the workers who are unionizing in Alabama were part worked in unionized jobs before they came to Amazon and took a pay cut to come to Amazon, Right. So I think Can you what warehouses are unionized? I know there was a big battle here in the Inland Empire, San Bernardino and Riverside counties, where there's a hundred thousand warehouse workers, but their target Walmart. I don't know if that Amazon is there, but so yeah, oh, Amazon is, is definitely a fourteen warehouses there, I believe. Yeah, and they're often undocumented. A lot of them are ex-cons. They don't have, they have horrendous conditions, probably vying with the conditions that you're describing, but lower waged, as far as I understand. So which ones are unionized? Which warehouses? Yeah. yeah. I'm trying to think. Well, UPS is unionized, which isn't a warehouse. But, <laughs> but still, they have the drugs. They have warehouses. Yeah. There are a lot of, and maybe I'm saying warehousing, but what I really mean is manufacturing. So in the area of Bessemer, there are tons of auto parts factories and then smaller warehouses that are names I did not recognize that probably are contract out for other companies that are unionized and that pay much better. But in in the South, you have a lot of auto manufacturing that is unionized that is sort of like the same workers who work at Amazon are also used to work at those auto plants that either left or, I mean, the last big labor battles in the South were at the Volkswagen plant in Tennessee. Yeah. yeah. And uh, a plant just down the road from the Amazon plant in Alabama, um, a Mercedes-Benz plant in Vance, Alabama, where they couldn't even get to the point of a union election. There was also a Nissan warehouse election in 
within the last decade in Canton, Mississippi, and all three of those efforts failed. And I think we're very demoralizing for the labor movement that was very excited about how the potential of having these big victories in the South. And I think, you know, this Amazon election is sort of like that, but even bigger, like there is so much resting on this for for the labor movement. Right. And that's what I was going to say that makes it so historic because people see it as kind of opening the floodgates. If they're successful to unionizing the South, you know, which I had Mike Goldfield on a couple of weeks ago, and he talked about the history of uh, union activism in Alabama and around Bessemer, which Mm -hmm. has been a significant labor history that most people don't really know that much about. So this would be historic in every way. And certainly one would hope opening up the floodgates for other Amazon warehouses and not just in the South. So there's a lot, as you say, riding on it. And even, you know, the uh, Brookings report that came out a couple of weeks ago said this is about dignity. It's about racial justice and about the future of the American worker. So it's like, again, in places that you don't normally see pro-union, pro-worker pro-people of color messages coming out, they're coming out. So this is really a watershed kind of struggle that's going on. So having said all that, and I don't want to take up all your time as you recover from your first (laughs) jab, as they say in Britain, (laughs) do we have any indication when you talk to people, does anybody know how it's going? And then maybe, I guess, what happens if they lose? Yeah, those are good questions. You know, right now, there's no public information about how it's going. There will be soon. I think going in, my perspective or what I understood from reporting on the ground is that it's going to be an uphill battle for the union to pull this off, which, and it's not because, you know, workers don't necessarily want to union. It's because of this campaign, this union busting campaign that I talked to you about. Like, that is very powerful stuff, especially for younger workers, which the warehouse has a lot of people straight out of high school, 18 to 24 year olds who maybe have never heard of a union before or you know, don't care because this is already a shitty job that they want to get out of. And so it's just a few months thing. And so, um, yeah, I think there's a lot of fear that like the younger group of workers either didn't vote or voted no or was, you know, sort of more more like impressionable to their managers pulling them aside and saying, Hey, like, this is why you should really vote no, because you could lose your job or you could actually end up with lower pay. And these are things that workers believe. I have no, I guess I I would say that there's, for those reasons, there is a more, in my mind, there's a greater chance that the union will not win. And I don't mean to be pessimistic. I actually do not know. I don't have the numbers. And I think if they do end up I mean, I would, I would be surprised either way. I mean, I think either thing could happen. I think if they do end up losing, it's going to be a huge letdown for unions, for people organizing Amazon around the country. I think it's going to be devastating because so much is, you know, the future of work is basically in some ways, riding on the outcome of this election. That said, I don't think that it has to be that way. I think a lot of what the workers who are organizing right now are sort of saying is like, if we lose, we still, we got further than anyone else has ever gotten before. And like, people should be inspired by how far we got and continue organizing. And, you know, I think there's a mix of things, right? Like this has never happened before. And like when workers see other workers win or like 
you know, get further than they have before. That's very inspiring. At the same time, when workers see an effort lose, that is very demoralizing. So I think if they lose, there's there's going to be both things that happen. I don't think it's just like a total loss in terms of, um, you know, moving forward and unionizing Amazon again. I just don't know when the next opportunity will be for a union election at Amazon um, because it, it takes so much organizing effort and factors coming together in the right way. It does. And I, you know, not to end it on a pessimistic note, I have to say that even, you know, when Biden came out and said that he didn't think that those captive audience meetings should be allowed to take place, that that was a nod in the direction of this effort without coming right out and saying it. And that, you know, there's all this effort now, you know, in Congress to get the PRO Act signed and made into a bill and voted on. That's also an uphill struggle. But, you know, as you've laid out, and I think there's never been a time quite like this where the sentiment is coming together. So I guess we can only have fingers crossed and hope that if they do, uh, if they aren't successful, that they will have, you know, figured out what they can do next time to make it successful. Right. I want to thank you so much, Lauren Kiori Gurley, for joining us today and for giving us this long interview, despite, you know, having feeling the after effects of a COVID vaccine and congratulations on that. Tell the listeners to go to vice.com's motherboard website where you can find all of Lauren's reporting on labor tech and Amazon. And (laughs) congratulations on winning this March Sydney Award for this historic Amazon coverage. And thanks for joining us today on Jacobin Radio. Yeah, thank you so much, Susie. I really appreciate you inviting me and thanks for your great questions. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.